Uh, question. Is anybody out there glad that Jesus is their firm foundation? Amen. That's it? That's all you got? Anybody glad that Jesus Christ is your firm foundation? Yeah, yeah come on. Seriously. I mean, come on. All right. Hey, so we're in this verse-by-verse study of the words that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew, the ex-tax collector named Levi, to put on paper 2,000 years ago. Uh, words about Jesus, words about the king and his kingdom. And, and listen, where we are in the study right now is at that moment when the religious leaders had had enough of this 30-year-old, upstart, Galilean, ex-carpenter turned rabbi. Like their hatred and hostility towards him had become a raging inferno. Such that we read in Matthew 12, verse 14, the Pharisees went out and plotted. And, and, and Matthew tells us in his account in uh, Mark 3, I mean, Mark tells us in his account in Mark 3, verse 16. I, oh, you know what? I'm drinking some water right now. <laughs> Mark tells us in his <laughs> Uh, uh, Mark tells us in his account in, in Mark 3, 6 that when the Pharisees went out to plot, uh, they joined in with the Herodians who were their arch enemies. Uh, they were unholy, they were unrighteous, they were secularists. But you see, even though they hated the Herodians, they hated Jesus more. So they plotted with them that they might kill Jesus. Apollomy is the Greek word. It means to destroy, to abolish, to kill it's the same word that, that Peter uses in 2 Peter verse 3.16 when he says this. Uh, By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Uh, understand the religious elite did not just want Jesus dead. Uh, they wanted everything about him, his name, his teaching, his memory, dead, deluged, destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth. And you know, this week, as I thought about the word apollomy and this idea of completely destroying something, my mind went back to when my oldest son, John, who's now 37, was in high school. And he and Anthony, a guy who lived with us for a couple years because of a terrible home life, would play Mario Kart on the Nintendo 64 that we had. And these young men, they were very aggressive with it. Like, they didn't just want to win. They wanted to completely destroy and decimate the other. And they even came up with the word to describe this deluge and destruction. Not apollomy, but myrtleize. They wanted to myrtleize each other. Myrtleize is as fine as to completely defeat, destroy, and decimate your opponent. Myrtleize. I called my son up because I said, I'm going to get him to give me the definition. So I text John, hey, give me a call. And I didn't realize he was still in Kenya. He called me, and he was doing some mission stuff. And I said, hey, do you remember when you guys played, you know, Mario Kart with Anthony? And do you remember the term that you used? He goes, no. I said, what? I said, like, you're breaking my heart here. I go, myrtleize. He goes, oh, myrtleize. I mean, it went through a whole youth group. I'm going to myrtleize you. That's what the religious elite and the ruling class wanted to do to Jesus. They wanted to myrtleize him. They wanted to completely defeat, destroy, and decimate, wipe off the face of the earth, everything about Jesus. Our text today is Matthew 12, 15 through 21, and a conversation that I'm calling, Behold, my servant. And before we go there, I, I, I want to set the stage for these Holy Spirit-inspired words that God breathed through Matthew, these seven verses. Uh, now, last week in our conversation the Lord of the Sabbath, we talked about all of the things that had gone down during Jesus' year-plus ministry that brought us to the point where the religious elite wanted to destroy and kill Jesus. Sure, he healed thousands of people of every disease and every sickness, bringing hope to the hopeless. However, much of what he said, did, insulted, infuriated, enraged, and threatened the power and position of the religious elite. I mean, the first 12 chapters of his gospel, uh, Matthew records Jesus saying such things as, unless your righteousness 
the seeds that is better than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And when they found Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors and got all bent out of shape, Jesus said to them, to religious elite, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus said to them a little later down the road that they who were so proud of who they were, so proud of what they accomplished, Jesus said that you guys are worse than and you will be worse off on the day of judgment than the wicked city of Sodom. Because you've heard so many teachings, you've heard so much, you've seen so many miracles, yet you still refuse to bend your knee and worship Jesus and repent. Remember, the greater the exposure to the truth of the gospel, the greater the condemnation for continuing to reject that gospel. And then Matthew chapter 11, 25 through 12, verse 8, what Jesus says to these guys, it actually pushes them over the edge. Jesus says that he is the presence of God, that he is the second Moses, uh, that he is the ancient path that will give rest for their souls. That he is greater than David. That he is greater than the temple. And that he, not them, that he, not their interpretation, that he, not their traditions, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Yes, the things that Jesus said made them want to kill him and destroy him. And so did the things that he did. Eating with sinners and tax collectors. Refusing to fast on their special fast days. Uh, telling a man that his sins were forgiven and breaking the Sabbath rules, which again defined who they were and maintained their power and position. Yes, the religious elite and the ruling class had had enough of Jesus. So the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill him. I understand all that goes down right before our text today. And things don't get much better after our text because what Matthew records next is how Jesus, he, he goes out and he casts a demon out of a guy. That's a pretty good thing, right? And they accuse him, yeah, you did it, but you did it through the power of Satan. Understand, when we come to Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, the die had been cast. And the religious elite, like Julius Caesar in January of 49 B.C., they had crossed their Rubicon. And there was no turning back. Jesus must be killed. And here's our text. Matthew, 15, Matthew 12, 15 through 21. He writes, aware of this. Someone say, aware of this. Aware of this. Jesus withdrew from that place. A, a large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what the was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. That's our text. And I really like what one guy said about it that I read this week. He says, this passage is a presentation of Jesus in his wonder and his beauty and his majesty and his eminence. And it drops, as it were, like an oasis in the midst of the desert chapters of Matthew 11 and Matthew 12. Drops like an oasis. Does anybody out there need an oasis this morning? Okay, so here, here's how I want to attack our passage. Uh, we're going to talk about aware of this, 12 through, I mean, Matthew 12, 15 and 16. This is who he is, 17 and 18. Uh, this is how Jesus rolls, 19 through 21, and then end up with our big, so what? Like, who cares? What does it matter? What does it mean for us today? Before we go there, uh, I want to do two quick announcements, and we're going to do a take two. Um, one announcement is this Tuesday night at 6.30 p.m., 
at Buffalo Wild Wings, the men of Maple Grove will gather to do buy one, get one free wings. <laughs> okay, you got to have the app or else you only get 50% off. You use the app, it's buy one, get one free. All right, and so we're going to meet there at 6.30, you know, and it's welcome to every guy in this room right now. We're going to gather, eat some wings, talk some guy stuff, and walk out the door, right? So you're all invited to that. And as Courtney mentioned also, you know, we had a great time. We spent about nine hours, 19 people, um, talking about how we can actually begin to make Jesus' final words all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you about how, how can we as a church make his final words our first work. It's about how can we become a church of disciples who make disciples. It was a great time. It's, the conversation is, is rolling. Uh, stay tuned. More to come. And if you missed it and you're like, hey, I missed it. What do you all talk about? Let me know, and I will give you a binder, right? And we'll have the access to every single video we watched, and you can take that binder, fill it out, and find out everything that we talked about uh, this past weekend. It was a great time. And now, without any further ado, we will get up. Oh, it rhymes. Without any further ado, we'll get up and take two. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. We can gather as a family, gather and look at your word. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I want to do a few repeat backs. Someone say amen. Amen. Someone say bring it. it. Someone say come on. on. All right, now I'm ready to preach, right? Okay. (laughs) Anytime you feel like say bring it, Steve, come on. All right. All right, let's do it. All right. Uh, Aware of this. Aware of what? Aware that the religious leaders want to kill him. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Okay, so why did Jesus withdraw? A lot of reasons. I I think one is because there was no need to stir things up more than they already were. And, And if he stayed, things could have gotten a whole lot hotter, a whole lot more heated. And maybe even to the point where those who were still at the time on Team Jesus uh, would want to start a revolt to put him in charge. I mean, after the feeding of the 5,000, it says that they wanted to make him king by force and that Jesus withdrew from that place to the mountains. And also Jesus knew that his revolution must not come by the shedding of Roman blood, but by the shedding of his own blood. You see, his reign and rule must not come at the hands of a mob or a crowd, but on a cross. So he withdrew from that place. Understand, there would come a time when there would be that ultimate confrontation with the religious elite. That must happen. It will take place, but it was not time yet. And listen, he didn't withdraw because he was afraid to die, because that's why he came. Jesus came to die, but only at the time ordained by God. In the meantime, Jesus knew that he had more work to do, and he did not want anything to keep him from doing it. In fact, if you think about it, he's doing exactly what he told his guys to do when he sent them out on their first missionary trip. Remember when he said, hey guys, if it gets really hard here, if you get a lot of persecution, move on from there to somewhere else where people will listen, Matthew 10, verse 23. Yes, sometimes discretion really is the better part of valor. That means avoiding a dangerous, unpleasant situation is sometimes the most sensible thing to do. That comes from Shakespeare play, Henry IV, part one, act five, scene four. Or so they tell me. I'm not really a Shakespeare kind of guy. I'm more of a Walmart kind of guy, all right? When I go to Target, it's like I've gone up, it's like, who are these people? These, I, I was there with uh, baby the other day. I, goes, I said, these are not my people. <laughs> I need to go to Walmart. That, that, that's where my people are, all right? It's anywhere. Uh, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place, and a large crowd followed him, and I'm sure the religious leaders hated it, right? 
watching another large crowd lead them to follow Jesus, but people were just drawn to Jesus. And he healed all who were ill. Like a 100% success rate. I mean, he healed every disease and every sickness, maybe thousands of people. And Matthew just kind of mentions it as a footnote. Oh, yeah, he healed thousands of people, every single one. I mean, try to imagine if you were in that crowd. And you saw all those blind eyes open. You saw every, all those diseases cured. All those lame limbs restored to health. I mean, the excitement and the joy and the energy must have been insane. Healed all who were ill, and he warned them not to tell others about him. Now imagine if Jesus had a campaign manager. I mean, they'd be like, hey, Jesus, I think we need to adjust your talking points and your strategy a little. Like, I'm not sure that telling people, hey, if you want to follow me, people are going to hate you. (laughs) And they're going to persecute you. And that line you keep hammering, that they cannot be their, your, your disciple unless they hate their family? That is not polling very well, Jesus. And Jesus, every time you draw a large crowd, either you say something to offend them or you leave and go somewhere else. And then you do all these amazing miracles and healings. And instead of flooding social media with image after image and reel after reel of those healings, You say, hey, don't tell anybody about it. Like, Jesus, are you really sure you want to do it this way? This is not how people get a following. And his strategy did seem a little confusion. It was confusing to his own brothers. In John 7, 3 and 4, we read that his brothers come up to him. That would include James and Jude, by the way. We read this. Here's what they said to him. Jesus, leave Galilee, right? You know, there's, not, there's not any good news stations there. Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, sow yourself to the world. You see, even back then, James did not understand that Jesus did not come to be a public figure. He came to be a crucified Savior. Amen? Now, I think there are a lot of reasons that Jesus did not want them to spread the word about him, about what he had done. And number one, I think Jesus knew the problem of a secondhand information. You know how secondhand stories can get twisted and perverted, changed? And he wanted people, if you're going to make a decision about me, I want it because you encountered me personally. You saw me personally. You heard me personally. I think another reason, he did not want to be known as a miracle worker. Jesus did not come primarily to this earth to heal disease. He came to save us from our sins, right? That's the primary purpose. He didn't want that to get clouded in any way. He also knew that, again, you get your people fired up, and Rome sees your people fired up at this new king, it could cause problems with Rome. And the Pharisees already were not very fond of him, and he didn't want to just make it even worse, right? He was trying to mitigate that as much as possible. He didn't want things to explode before God's perfect timing. Matthew continues. He says, this was to fulfill. Okay, what is the, what is the this? Referring to the hatred, the rejection, the hostility, the plot to kill him, his withdrawal, the healing of everyone, and him not telling, him telling people, don't tell anyone. This was to fulfill, that word is a Greek word, Greek word, plerao, and Matthew loves this word. He's already used it eight times to show, hey, Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. The virgin birth, Matthew 1 verse 22, that Jesus would go down to Egypt and come out of Egypt, Matthew 2 15, that he would grow up in Nazareth, Matthew 2 7, that he began to preach in the Galilean region, Matthew 4, verse 14. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And now we come to the heart of our text. It is the longest Old Testament quote in Matthew's gospel. It's from Isaiah chapter 42. From Isaiah chapter what? 42. 42. Here's a side note. 
How many chapters in the book of Isaiah? Anybody know? 66, right? And it's kind of cool how they, you know, it's, God didn't do it that way. It just kind of worked that way. But the first 39 chapters are kind of more like God's ticked in judgment. Chapter, that's 39 books in the Old Testament. The next 27 are more about redemption. You know, chapter 40 is where you have those who trust in the Lord, right, and all that. And he's sometimes called the gospel prophet. Okay, sign note over. Um, Matthew 42 is the, excuse me, uh, Isaiah 42 is the first of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Um, probably the most well-known is the last one, Isaiah 53, as a, as a lamb before his shearers of silence, so he did not lift up his voice. These are written 700 years before Jesus was even born. And these verses, what's happening here, it's kind of like God has said, hey, all you people have rejected Jesus. You got your opinions about Jesus. Let me tell you how I see Jesus. Uh, let me tell you who Jesus is to me. Behold my servant, whom I've chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. Behold my servant. Uh, that word servant is sometimes translated as servant. Sometimes it's translated as son. In Jesus' case, it's like the perfect word, right? Because he is the servant son. But like, you cannot separate Jesus' servanthood from Jesus' sonship. The word often refers to a trusted servant, to a noble servant. It's used in the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament in Greek, about 250 B.C., sometimes Jesus and the authors of the New Testament quote from the Septuagint. In Genesis 24, it speaks to Abraham's chief servant. In Genesis 41, it, it talks about a, a royal servant who serves in the king's court. Behold my servant's son, my trusted, my chief, my noble and royal servant. Yes, when Jesus, God the Son, walked this earth, he walked as a servant. In fact, Jesus said in, in Matthew 20, which a lot of us read this week in our Bible reading, talked about this very thing. Like his guys are all jockeying, like James and John kind of get their mom. Hey, hey, mom, could you ask Jesus to give us these best seats? And, you know, and everybody else got upset, not because... They were horrified. How could you want that? Because, hey, we wanted it first, and you got to Jesus before us, right? And, and they think that'll make them great. And you say, hey, you want to be great? The path to greatness is by what? Being a servant. And then Jesus said this, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, a king, the king of kings, who came to serve not himself, but others, but you and me. I mean, if you lived in a country back in the days of king, could you imagine a king coming to your house and like serving you? That you'd be like, what is going on here? Something's not right. Uh, Paul shared these words about Jesus, God's servant, in Philippians 2. In your relationships, Someone say, in your relationships, in your relationships. with one another, ha have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider quality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And understand, and this is so important, when Jesus took on the nature of, of a servant, Paul's not saying that he did that in spite of the fact that it was God. If you look at the way the original language is, he's basically saying, because he's God, because that's who God is. God is a servant. When Jesus was a servant, he was revealing who God is. Jesus told a parable in Luke 12 about this wedding banquet. And this is crazy. He says this in Luke 12, 37. It'll be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Talk about him returning. 
Truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. We'll have them reclining at the table and we'll come and wait on them. Are you kidding me? He, the king, when he returns, he, he will dress himself to serve and tell you and I, hey, you all recline at the table because I want to serve you. That's our God. Are you kidding me? Behold my servant whom I have chosen. That word chosen indicates a a great firmness of choice. It's used in secular Greek to speak of you know, adopting of a child. Taking them in a firm commitment. I choose you. Uh, Laura and I got to do that two times. May Lee, we choose you. Gentile, we choose you. And it was a firm commitment. I love it. God is saying, behold my servant. Yes, you rejected him. Yes, you weighed him and found him wanting, and you want him dead, but I have chosen him. He is my chosen one. And listen, by the time of Jesus, that idea of God choosing Messiah became so common that it became a title that he is what? He is God's chosen one. May Lee, we choose you. <laughs> She wasn't there. I was going to look right at you. You know what? Your Bible will tell you what that means later. <laughs> we choose you. Still choose you. We'll always choose you. But it became his title. We see it when Jesus hung on a cross in Luke 23. The people stood watching. The rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. He saved himself. If he saved himself, if he saved others, he can save himself. And what they don't understand, Jesus could save himself if he wanted to, right? And when he was arrested in the garden, in Matthew 26, you know, Peter chops the ear off. He says, hey, put that away, Peter. I know you think you're all that, but if I wanted some help, I could call 12 legion, I could call 72,000 angels to come help me. One angel in the Bible took out 185,000 enemies, so we're talking, he, he could save himself if he wanted to. But then Jesus says this, Matthew 26, 54, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Like, if I save myself, I can't save you. And I came to save you, even you who are jeering at me right now. Behold my servant, whom I chosen, my beloved. And I'm sure it doesn't surprise you that uh, that, that word uh, beloved is agape, love of the will, sacrificial love. Now John 3, we have that great verse about how God loves us, John 3, 16. There's also a verse in there that talks about how the Father loves the Son John 3.35, the father loves the son. He's placed everything in his hands. And that's not the only verse. There's a lot of verses where the father talks about his love for his son. Uh, none more powerful than what we find in John 17 when Jesus, he's praying in the garden. I mean, picture the scene that his arrest, his crucifixion, his death are imminent, and he's praying this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me. Because you love me, someone say, because you love me. Someone say, because you love me. Before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know you, and they know that you sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that, someone say in order that, the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Behold my servant, whom I chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. Kind of sounds like what happened at the bap- his baptism, right? When the sky split open and God said, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Uh, question, why was 
God so pleased with Jesus? I, I thought about it a little bit this week, and here's some reasons that I came up with why God's soul was pleased with Jesus. Because Jesus is his son. Because he loves Jesus, and Jesus loves him. And because Jesus values his relationship with the Father. And because Jesus is faithful to the Father's will. Without faith, it's not possible to please God. Hebrews eleven six. Check out what Jesus said in John fourteen thirty one. I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. John eight twenty eight and 29. Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do. Someone say, for I always do. What pleases him. And then in the garden again. My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. God the Father with great pride and joy and boldness says, yeah, you don't like him, you don't think much of him, but I tell you, behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. He says, this is who Jesus is. And then he says, this is how Jesus rolls. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised weed he, a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. In his name the Gentiles will hope. Again, in Isaiah 42, God is like, this is how Jesus rolls. First of all, he rolls with my spirit. I will put my spirit on him. We see that very thing again in in his baptism in Matthew 3, verse 17, when the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Uh, We see it in Luke chapter 12. After Jesus defeats the enemy in the wilderness... He returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, Luke 4, 14. And he goes to the synagogue in his hometown and a scroll was handed to him. And it just happened to be from the prophet Isaiah. And Luke records, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, as Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, Jesus rolls with God's Spirit on him. Uh, Peter says in Acts 10, verse 38, that when Jesus went around doing good in the power of the Spirit, he, he rolls with the Spirit and he rolls proclaiming justice. And he will proclaim, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. It's the Greek word ethnos, ethnic, where we get our word. And now, interestingly, this word justice is the Greek word krisis, and it means a separation, a trial, a judgment. It's what Matthew used already in Matthew eleven twenty four, when he says, hey, Capernaum is going to be worse on the day of judgment than for you. It's the word used in Hebrews nine twenty seven. People are destined to die once and then to face the judgment. It's a word that Peter uses in 2 Peter 3, 7. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And I'm not really sure why everyone translated justice and not judgment. Uh, I went back and, you know, if you ever, blueletterbible.com is a great thing, a tool to use for your Bible study, right? And so I went to Isaiah 42. Hey, what's the Hebrew word mean? Guess what it means most times? Judgment. Bottom line, when Scripture speaks of justice, it means doing what is right. See, Jesus would come proclaiming the right way that people are to live their lives on the earth. This is what God says is right. This is what God says is wrong. Now, our world talks a lot about justice today, right? However, for the most part, it's about demanding their rights or demanding someone else's rights. Biblical justice is about declaring the just and righteous ways of God. Biblical justice is about declaring the just and righteous ways of God and calling people, hey, this is how God wants us to live out our lives on this earth. Amen? It's different. 
What I'm trying to say is that Jesus, God's chosen beloved servant's goal in proclaiming justice is so that people will repent of their wicked ways and turn to God. So they'll stop living the wrong way and start living the right way. How does Jesus roll? He rolls with God's spirit. He rolls proclaiming justice. And he rolls in gentleness and meekness. He will not call or cry aloud nor anyone hear his voice in the streets. A question, who do you think was the smartest man who ever lived? The smartest man who ever lived. The gentlest. I would say Jesus for all three. And he will not quarrel or cry aloud or anyone hear his voice in the streets. Well, does that mean he's not talking out there? There's a guy I read this week and he said it so good that I'm just going to read what he said. It's so good. When Isaiah says he will not quarrel, cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets, he's talking about argumentation. Disagreements and arguments are facts of human existence. Often, we find ourselves in contentious circumstances. Ever been there? We grow angry or impatient, or we raise our voices. I know you all have never done that. Jesus debated the Pharisees all the time, and sometimes he was strongly provoked. However, he never let himself get heated in the wrong way. I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine he raised his voice much less that he screamed, shouted, or yelled at his opponents. That was not Jesus' style. Jesus did not have to scream or shout at the Pharisees because he was smarter and stronger. As a result, he did not quarrel or cry out, and no one heard his voice arguing in the streets. End quote. I mean, have you ever seen someone angry? In a disagreement, that they start shouting like a fool? You ever been that person? I have. Jesus does not roll that way. He comes in gentleness and meekness, with God's spirit proclaiming justice, with great compassion for the least of these. And, and these, these are some of the most powerful and beautiful words about Jesus, our Savior, serving King. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. See, in the ancient world, when people would use reeds, and these aren't reeds, they're a prop, so you know, pretend they're reeds. Okay. You know, in the ancient world, you know, people would use reeds to make, to make flutes and other things, and like these reeds were everywhere. And so they would gather a bunch of these reeds up, and they would look at them, right? And, and if, if, if this one was bruised and it wasn't, perfect, they go, look at this useless, worthless thing. This is no good. And they toss it aside. Look at this useless thing. And they toss it aside. Try to find another one. Isaiah is using this as a metaphor for people. He said, you know, when Jesus comes across bruising imperfect people, he's not going to say, look at him. Look at her. They're bruised. They're worthless. They have no value. I'm going to just break them in two. I'm just going to kick them to the curb. That's not who he is. Amen? He has compassion on them. And Isaiah said that like 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. And when he walked the earth, he, he ran into some bruised people. He ran into some bruised reed. There was one in, in John chapter 4, right? She's been married five times. She's living with a guy. She's drawing her water at the hottest part of the day because she can't face the stairs and the talk anymore. What did Jesus do to that bruised reed? He gave her living water. And John 8, he meets a bruised reed who's, who's drugged before people and they want to stone her for being caught in the act of adultery. What does he do to that bruised reed? Hey, where are your accusers? In Luke 19, there's this short tax collector. Everybody hated him. He hated himself. Hides in a tree to see Jesus. What did he do? Dude, I'm coming to your house today. Zacchaeus. That's our Jesus. He doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't look at people and say, you're worthless. You're useless. Doesn't do that. Years ago when Chuck Colson was launching his prison ministry, he was meeting with his friend R.C. Sproul. And he said, R.C., we have to have a logo for this ministry that people will recognize. And R.C. is like, hey, how about a bruised reed? 
He said, we're trying to minister to the rejected people of this world. These men and women are bruised people. And the ministry of the church is not to destroy them because Jesus would never break a bruised reed. And so there's their logo for the ministry, right? I mean, that's what people do. Right? They're, they're losers, right? They, they're criminals. They broke the law. They're no good. But let's just break them and throw away. Go, no, Jesus wouldn't do that. Amen. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. And I don't have a candle. I was going to find a candle, but I don't have one. It's a printer. Yeah, you got a candle and it's smoldering and like not giving any light. Really all it's giving is some annoying smoke that's irritating, doesn't smell too good. So people do what? Snuff it out. Snuff it out. It's pointless. They got nothing to offer. I mean, their light is barely flickering. Why bother with them? Their faith is so weak. They're full of so much fear and doubt. And the smoke of their lives is just annoying to me. It's so irritating. They'll never get their act together. Snuff. That's not how Jesus rolls. He doesn't snuff it out. He fans that smoldering wick into a, a flame. Amen? I, I thought about Peter this week. I think when he was sinking in the waves, he was kind of a smoldering wick. Jesus would say, hey, goodbye. Let him sink. When he denied Jesus, right? How about the, the guy in Matthew 9 whose son was demon-possessed and he wanted Jesus. He wasn't sure Jesus could. Remember that, that famous line we love so well because we relate so well? I believe, Jesus, but help me with my... Oh, you don't, you have unbelief? You're always struggling. You never get it right. You always fall short. How does Jesus roll? With God's spirit proclaiming justice and gentleness and meekness with great compassion for the least of these. Bringing victory and hope to the nations until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. I love it. Jesus just keeps on tending bruised and broken reeds fanning the flames of those who are smoldering until he brings forth victory. And in this, the nations have hope. Hey, guys, I read the end of the story. And to the end, God's justice wins. In the end, God's justice wins. Yes, one day, every wrong will be made right. Some wrongs will not be made right in this lifetime, but every wrong will be made right. One day, Jesus will bring justice to victory. Yes, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that God's way is the right way. That's who Jesus is. That's how Jesus rolls. And now our big so what? And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But I hope this week you spend a whole lot of time here reflecting what I'm going to share. And a whole lot time out there thinking of how you could live this out. If you are a Jesus follower, this is how God sees you. I mean, he will look at you today and say, you are my servant. You are chosen. You are loved. And with you, I'm well pleased. You are my servant. You are loved. You are chosen. With you, God is well pleased. You are God's servant. You are loved. You are chosen. With you, God is well pleased. You are God's servant. You are loved. You are chosen. With you, God is well pleased. And this is how we're to roll. We're to roll with the Spirit. The Spirit given to us, we're baptized into Christ. What a role of the Spirit, with the Spirit working in us, working through us, guiding us, and developing His fruit in us. Listen, we, we best not go out doing His work without the Spirit. What do He tell us guys to do in Acts 2? Hey, wait for the Spirit. 
And, and, and we're to roll proclaiming justice, proclaiming God's way with their voice and their lives. This is what God says is right. Not shouting. This is what God says is wrong. Um, I know I'm shouting. <laughs> Not shouting. <laughs> this is what God says is right. It's a wonderful day in the neighborhood. Okay. This is what God says is wrong. This is how God wants us to live out our lives on the earth. We're to proclaim that kind of justice, God's way of justice in our homes, in our marriages, in our workplace, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, and in our community. This is God's way, and it's the best way. We're to roll with the Spirit, proclaiming justice and gentleness and meekness. No more shouting like a fool in defense of Christ. I've been that kind of fool more times than I care to count. Shouting like a fool, making my point, shouting in the streets. No more being argumentative. Peter said this, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give a reason to anyone to ask you for the hope that you have. But do this, shouting with logic, so you defeat them. No. But I'm good at that. But do this with gentleness and respect. What a role with the Spirit, proclaiming justice and meekness, with great compassion for the least of these. Our world is full of broken and bruised reeds. People feel worthless. Sometimes it's because of things that were done to them. Sometimes it's because of what they did. And our world looks at them. They're useless. They're worthless. God wants us to roll with compassion for them. And when we see someone's faith that's weak and struggling, and we're so puffed up, gosh, I never struggle. Why do you have those doubts? Why do you struggle so much? We're not to do that. We're to come alongside and help people. And help their faith get stronger. Help them in their journey. Amen? That's how we're to roll. That's who we're to be. We're to roll with the Spirit, proclaiming justice and gentleness and meekness, with compassion for the least of these, bringing his hope to the nations. A hope that a guy who was once a smoldering wick said, is living and cannot and will not ever perish full or fade away. Question. Will you bring that hope to people this week? Will you look for ways to bring hope and healing and comfort to bruised and broken branches. They may even be in your own home. They may even be in this room. They may be where you work. They may be somewhere. And when you see someone who's struggling in their faith, let's not be puffed up and think we're all that because we're not. Only one person was all that and it wasn't you. And it wasn't me. And Jesus wants us to go out and roll like he rolls with the Spirit, proclaiming justice, and meekness and gentleness, with compassion for the least of these, bringing hope to people. Amen. Amen. What a powerful and beautiful picture Jesus, I mean, God paints for us through Isaiah. It, it reminds us that Jesus found us bruised, but he didn't break us. He didn't toss us aside as worthless. It reminds us that when Jesus finds us smoldering and faltering and barely hanging on in our faith, he does not and he will not snuff us out. It's despite all our abuses, all our bruises and our brokenness and our impurities and our imperfections, God choose, chose and he still chooses to pour out his love on us and make us his own people. And make all things new in our life. Amen. 
What a beautiful passage and what a beautiful picture. That's how he sees you. And that's how you roll. Amen? Amen. Behold my servant. We're going to sing a song and lead into our time of communion where we remember the fact that Jesus lived, Jesus died to give us life. And not just to forgive us, but to restore us to his image so that we can claim him to the nations. And, and uh, the song we're going to sing is a, is a really good one. Um, it's called Beautiful Things. And, and I may share it before, but I'll share again. Um, the most special time I ever sang this was when I was in a DR at a leper colony. And, and, and uh, we, we, we had about 35 kids around the country. Laurie and I led on a mission trip down there. And I, I would say that's people that are usually cast aside. And they were in a colony. And, and some were missing part of their nose and their face and their hands and fingers. You know, and... and uh, I, to this day, I still can see the image of it, of, of us, you know, 30 young people and two old people, you know, singing to these people, this, with these people, beautiful things. And I got to speak before and I told them, hey, you know what? That, that your limbs won't always be like that. The, the God will make you new. The God can take what is bruised and broken and do something beautiful with it. That's who Jesus is, and that's who he wants us to be as a church. Amen. So as you sing this song, think about what God has done in your life. All the brokenness that he's, he's, he's bandaged up and made whole. All the bruises that he mended. All the times he fanned your, your smoldering wick of faith. And then think about other people in the world who need you to bring that message to them. Let's just sing that song together. If you haven't, grab your communion. It's off to the side. And as always, that's where we collect our offering. But really, this is worship our king right now. Be grateful for who he is. Let's do it.